Hello and welcome to this new podcast for Science and Society and I'm Anton Pozniak and I'm talking today to Professor um, Ravi Gupta who's a professor of virology at Cambridge University and an expert in COVID. So Ravi, uh, welcome to the program. Thank you. Um, uh, right, so we're going to talk today about the hot news in COVID, which is this Omicron variant. Uh, and I just wanted to ask, can you describe how genetically different this variant is from the others that we know well, the Delta and the Beta variant? Well, it's it's got some co- similarities between um, where, you know other variants, but it really has more mutations than we've ever seen before on one virus. Um, it's got sort of something like 50 across its genome and uh, 30 of them are in that spike protein that we, we always hear about. And that spike protein is the bit that latches onto our cells and enables the virus to get in. Um, and that bit of the virus is also the bit that our antibodies are largely targeted at. And therefore, when, it, when the spike protein changes, it makes our antibodies less effective often, you know, after vaccination or previous infection. So, so that's how it's genetically different in some ways on spike. The other bits, uh, it does have some other changes in the bit of the spike protein that's responsible for um, generating a mature or really infectious form so this is the cleavage site and that's also mutated with three different mutations and and we've seen that before uh, we've seen signatures like that before in the um, in the delta and the alpha variant so so it's doing things that make it more infectious likely and it's also doing things that make it less visible to our immune system wow and and the the sort of delta beta variants they don't have 50 mutations do they that this is quite extraordinary Yes, that's right. So, so the other variants of concern have had up to sort of twenty odd mutations, um, and you know that most you'd see sort of um, uh, you know up to up to up to ten in the spike protein, but not thirty. So, I, I, there's an interesting thing that I heard, uh, which is that this variant doesn't seem to have evolved out of Delta or Beta. Where do you think it evolved from, or have I got that wrong? Yes, I mean, if you look at the um, the ancestry of, the, of 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 this virus, it and you look at it on the phylogenetic tree, its root uh, is traced back to viruses that were circulating in 2020. Um, after the virus emerged out of Wuhan, you might you might remember that it acquired this mutation called D614G, and that became the globally dominant virus. It wasn't called a variant back then because it was just three different mutations, uh, and 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 the, and 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 that was again a the result of, of the virus trying to get more infectious so it evolved from something circulating in mid 2020 and um, and and my view on this is that it's probably been sort of incubating or sitting in a single person for for for, for over a year to acquire that many mutations and it may have gone from one person to another and done you know and 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 and, and, and through chronic infection over many months it may have happened in two individuals even so are these are these the individuals that we've we've heard about that could be immune suppressed and therefore not being able to clear the virus, you know, but stay sort of in, in some sort of symbiotic relationship with it? Yes, um, that's right. Uh, in in mid twenty twenty, it was becoming clear that um, some, you know this virus didn't just cause an infection and either kill you or you know or you recovered from it. There was this uh, there was this sort of no man's land where uh, you could end up being infected for quite some time shedding virus and for a while people thought that virus was kind of dead but actually we and we and others showed um quite convincingly that um 
that mutations could occur on top of the original virus and quite some large number could acquire could be acquired um, and selected for. And, and sometimes if you gave people convalescent plasma, you could drive um, you know, Darwinian selection or, or, or evolutionary selection of these mutations that, that the virus can use to escape from the antibodies or make antibodies less effective. And presumably, if you give these people monoclonal antibodies, you could do the same thing. Yes, yes, that's right. So you, theoretically, you could. Um, the, the monoclonals that we use um, are given at very high dose, um, so there are a lot of them. And so that can partially overcome um, any resistance. Um, but yes, under certain circumstances where there isn't enough antibody around um, or the virus has already started mutating, then, then you can drive further um, kind of um, selection of, of resistance mutations to the antibodies. But at the moment, I'm going to talk about treatment later, but at the moment, we don't know about the effect of any of these monoclonals on this virus at the moment, though. The predictions are that uh, that Regeneron, for example, might be less effective, um, uh, although we'll have to see whether that translates to a clinical um, changes in how you know how effective uh, Regeneron is, uh, and there's another monoclonal uh, called Citrovimab, which uh, also predicted to have maybe some impact on on how effective that monoclonal is. But again, we need clinical data, not just the lab data. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I mean, I think that's very clear. We we need to go down that route now. Um, <laughs> I, I I also wondered about with this virus about its transmittability. Um, because we've not, it came, it seems to be, it rose out of South Africa. That's where the first cases came. Somebody noticed uh, something on the PCRs. Can you just explain quickly what that was? Yes. Um, so some labs are using a commercial test um, for coronavirus that involves looking for three bits of the virus's genetic code in three different places, three different sort of sequences of code. And uh, you do three because of the fact that when you have a virus that's changing, that, um, you know, if you only looked at one part, you might stop detecting it if that part changed or became different. So they go for three so that you can get a positive result, even if you lose one or two um, due to mutation or change in the virus. Um, and uh, one particular area that this test goes for is, um, is quite um, prone to being mutated. Uh, uh, and in fact, we described this mutation happening in an individual during chronic infection, as we were talking about earlier. Um, so it is something that happens during chronic infection, and it enables the virus to get a little bit more infectious. But the interesting thing about that mutation is that it also um, means you drop one of the, you know, you lose one of the signals in the, in the PCR test for, for coronavirus. So when the virus mutates to gain an advantage, it also causes this drop in signal. So only two out of three of tests come up positive. And what they observed in South Africa was the fact that they were seeing increasing numbers of cases of positive people that only had two out of three positive signals. And we saw this with the alpha variant because the alpha variant also had this, this mutation. And so we were well used to using this test as a way of kind of a, like a proxy for, um, for, for, for particular variants. And now that alpha variant has disappeared, um, this new variant, the Omicron, uh, has this same signature. And now we can use the, uh, the dropout signal as a very quick way of uh, telling how many people have uh, the new variant. Well, that was very well spotted, I must say. But the other interesting thing that I, I, I've, I've heard was that, uh, we've, that people believe that this is much more widespread than just South Africa, that the cases have appeared in other countries without travel history. 
So obviously there may have been some travel history and transmission, but do you do you believe it only came out of South Africa and spread everywhere, or do you think that it's that it's uh, occurred in in many places? Because we they don't do all this uh, gene sequencing in every country in the world. Yes, I mean it's it's difficult to know where the, the you know the virus arose. It could have arisen in another country and then and then the person travelled to South Africa, for example. So it's very hard to tell. But you know it. It's a reasonable probability that that it did arise in South Africa, and that's where it's been spreading, and that's why the the highest number of cases are in South Africa. I mean, yes, um, South Africa has very good surveillance, and so things are picked up quickly there. But I think that other countries around in the region have stepped up their sequencing, and you know they don't have the sort of case numbers that South Africa has, um, and therefore it's probably um, uh, originated in that you know in South Africa. Although, as I said, you can't be one hundred percent sure. Um, but yes, the the point is clear that uh, not everyone is using this this special test with a dropout signal, um, and uh, actual full genome sequencing is not being done at high scale in many places. And and so yes, there are, it's probably circulating in many countries at significant levels um, undetected. And um, the transmission of this virus. What do we know about that, Ravi? So far. Well, we know that it's growing very quickly. So um, in, in places where it's been introduced, uh, um, we th- in South Africa, where things were taking off just a few weeks ago, uh, they'd actually come to the end of their third wave of Delta. Um, uh, so, so Delta was in decline. Uh, they were coming up towards this. They're coming up there into the summer now. Um, and, and so when this new variant came, it really sort of took off on a background of quite low infections um, in general. Um, and so the, one of the questions was, well, is it actually competing with Delta or not? And so we've had to wait for it to come here to the UK. And in the UK, we are seeing that the uh, the Omicron is competing fairly effectively with Delta, which is at high levels at the moment. So it seems to be getting uh, gaining a greater, greater share of the total infection. So, so that, that suggests to us that the transmission potential of the virus is quite high. Now, whether that's due to it being able to evade new antibodies or or just being more infectious um, due to those changes in the spike protein is unclear at the moment. And we, you know, we, we and others are working to try and figure out um, what exactly is going on. Yeah, because we could get insights into what how the mutations uh, increase transmission, um, if, if that can be teased apart a bit. That's right. So we will be doing work on the actual virus and also artificial versions of the virus to kind of figure out um, how how um, immune evasive the, the the spike protein is, and or and how much more infectious uh, that 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 spike protein is uh, to kind of tease apart um, what we're seeing in, in populations. Because when you look across millions of people, um, the problem with those studies is that everyone has a different history. Some have been infected, some have been infected twice, some have been vaccinated, some have been triple vaccinated. They've had different combinations, uh, you know, of vaccine and infection. And of course, you've got age and demographics to, to factor in. So, so, so the population level studies become very, very um, hard to untangle. So what you're really saying at the moment, until we get more data, it's very difficult to know about the transmissibility in people who are unvaccinated single vaccine double vaccine booster vaccine <laughs> we, we we really haven't got anything yet to hang our hats on for that data not at the moment 
No. Okay. So, because I think there's a lot of stuff out there saying, you know, you'll be okay if you're vaccinated, etc. But th- we're now talking about transmission and not severity. So, um, all right. But what about severity of disease? Have we got any data on how severe this is if you if if it's transmitted to you? Well, the um, the, the the indication has been that uh, vaccinated travellers, for example, who have got, become sick, haven't really progressed to severe disease. Now, of course, that's a selected group of people. You know, they're healthier, they're younger. So, so um, it's hard to read into that. In South Africa, again, they were suggesting that the, the, the disease was milder than previous waves. Um, they have started seeing increase in hospitalizations and some deaths, but that's inevitable because they have a lot of unvaccinated individuals in, in South Africa. So, so I think that there may be some indications that its um, progression to severe disease is slightly um, uh, better with this virus. We, we don't know. But this could easily be offset at population level by it being much more transmissible or spreading very quickly in the population because of the sheer numbers of people who will eventually get sick anyway, because, um, you know, because uh, uh, even a small proportion of a large number is a large number. Yeah. So therefore, this may be a problem at public health level. Yeah, yeah. OK, so um, the advice would still be for everybody to continue with the current vaccines, which I really wanted to come round to talk to you about. Uh, um the current vaccines, do you think that we're heading for a future where the current vaccines need to be modified regularly um, to cover for uh, these variants that, that crop up? Uh, yes, I think inevitably we will need to. And I think people, once we realised um, variants of concern were, were, an, were a real thing, uh, you know, as a result of chronic infection, I think many of us um, knew that the the vaccines wouldn't last forever. I mean, you know, they've had a fantastic impact so far, but they will need modifying. We've got a variant, a virus now that is very, very different from the the one used uh, in the vaccine. So we do need to update vaccines. Um, how they're vac- uh, updated is a, is a sort of long discussion, but but certainly we will see new vaccines, um, uh, and we do need them. And, and it seems to me that the immunity for a lot, after a couple of doses of the vaccine. Uh, isn't quite lasting out to a year in many people because of reinfections, and 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 I've read that this Omicron has caused reinfections in in people, and even in people who've had Beta and um, and Delta before. So uh, <laughs> I just wonder what your it may be impossible to answer what your prognosis is for us as as humans on the planet. Will we be having annual vaccines, or or what do you think now? Yeah, well, I I think that. Um vaccine waning has it starts you know two months after your second dose it seems uh, and the risk of severe disease in the in the older age groups uh, increases after that uh, of course delta had exacerbated that issue because delta has partial vaccine escape properties in other words it can infect you despite being vaccinated so um, and of course omicron likely uh, uh, has is doing something similar um so we we do need boosting and uh you know, I think anticipating yearly boosters is is a, is a realistic prospect, at least for the next few years. But the difference for me is that uh, we don't give flu vaccine to absolutely everybody. Um, and yet these variants uh, seem to start in young people, maybe because of their social mixing and habits and because they're not being vaccinated and then spread to older people. Uh, so do you see a future with Omicron and other variants of interest where we, we're having to vaccinate quite, I mean, we are doing in many countries, vaccinating all the way down to five or six years old? Yes, I mean, there are some benefits to that, which is that, you know, people build up immune memory over time, um, you know, even from a young age. Uh, so, 
yes, we're having to vaccinate large numbers of people, because, you know, to limit the um, to, to 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 limit the you know the, the burden of, of infection and, and chronic infection and new variants. And really, this is not a, this is not a paradigm we've ever seen before. So so that's why it's really hard to uh, we shouldn't really apply anything we know about flu to this disease. And I think that was one of the mistakes we made early on by trying to treat it. Uh, thinking we could apply just the same tools, and and clearly they, they that was left wanting. For example, you know, for a start, this is this disease has a heart mortality that's ten times higher than than flu, um, uh, you know, uh, fundamentally. So so it, it is a completely different animal. And do we think that the Omicron will be susceptible to the small molecules that have been developed recently by Merck and Pfizer? Yes, the the we think that the uh, the antivirals will. Um, be efficacious. Um, uh, however, uh, they may be vulnerable because use of monotherapies in you know highly mutating virus such viruses like this and HIV, for example, um, are, are generally recipes for um, generation of resistance. So, so whilst they may work in the short term, we do need to get into thinking about combination therapies as we go forward. And these small molecules, though, I mean, I've, I've been thinking that maybe when uh, things like Omicron come and people get sick again, that they might they might be used as prophylaxis uh, in, in high risk people or people uh, on the front line. Uh, do you think that that's anything that could be um, countenanced? Well, I, th- I think that uh, f- for people not responding to vaccines, then we do need monoclonal antibodies as prophylaxis. I think they will. They, 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 they should start being used. Um, of course, we have a problem now with Omicron because it's it may be escaping some of those. So, so um, the alternative is to use the oral antivirals, but the problem is the half life is quite short, and you'd have to take pills for many days on end, and they're extremely expensive at the moment. So, so yes, we do need prophylaxis for vulnerable people, but I'm not sure we're we're there yet. Yeah, and I suppose with the Pfizer drug, there's an, an inhibitor in there which would uh, also affect any other drugs you're taking if you took it in the long term. So, uh, yeah, we we <laughs> we're still in the early phases of, uh, of of drug therapy, I would think, for COVID. So I, I'm I'm now going to end uh, with a philosophical question for you um, because it seems to me that at the moment there's a lot of unknowns whether you're vaccinated partially vaccinated or fully vaccinated or had covid in the past and vaccinated etc all those mixtures of people that we have what the effect of this um, virus is on transmission and progression to disease so if you were in charge ravi it's all, i'm not i'm not going to hold you to this in the future what measures would you put place to limit its spread and the effect on the population what can we do yeah, I, th- I think the mandatory uh, face coverings in all public places would be a, would have been a very good start. And if we had it since July, we may have um, you know lessened the burden or, you know uh, of disease that we've had. So so certainly mandatory mask wearing. I would be suggesting um, uh, obviously measures in classrooms. So school kids should be wearing masks above a certain age. Um, uh, we should have obviously um, precautions in place. We should be vaccinating down to children. Uh, in order to keep societies open. At the moment, we've got a you know, real epidemic of, of children getting sick and being off school, um, so, so that's causing trouble. Uh, so those are t- kind of some of the key key, key um, things I'd be doing. I would also be introducing vaccine passports. There's no excuse for anyone to be not vaccinated um, in this day and age. Uh, so you, could, you, know, you shouldn't be allowed to go into a restaurant or any kind of, any kind of public place unless you've been vaccinated. Um, and, of course, um, uh, um, Travel um, uh, testing for travel, I think, you know, can could be uh, improved as well as test and trace. Well, yeah, I mean, I must agree with you with all of those things and the social measures that we have to do. So, um, 
Anyway, well, we, we hope that for the holiday season, we'll be able to see our family and friends. Uh, uh, but we don't know where all this is all going. I would like to thank you so much, Professor Ravi Gupta from Cambridge University, for talking to us today uh, about this Omicron variant and uh, everything that it may or, or, or is doing at the moment. And uh, it's, it's goodbye from me, Anton Posniak from Science and Society. Thank you very much, Ravi Gupta. Thank you very much. As we finish the podcast, there's news breaking that Pfizer have said that two doses of the vaccine may still offer protection against severe disease caused by the Omicron strain, but their preliminary data on the BioNTech-Pfizer vaccine show that protection's maximised with a third dose. So we should ensure as many people as possible are fully vaccinated and that they get their booster so that we can prevent the spread of the Omicron strain. And with that, it's a great thanks to all of you for listening to me, Anton Posniak from Virology Education, uh, on behalf of Science and Society podcasts. And I've been speaking to Professor Ravi Gupta, consultant virologist at Cambridge University. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed the discussion today. Make sure to check out the notes for any references during the podcasts. You can learn more about virology education and our other programs at www academicmedicaleducation.com. Thanks for joining us and see you next time.